0: Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Good morning, church. Our scripture reading uh, this morning comes from 1 John 4, verse 7 through 21 should be on the screen behind me or you can turn to it in your bulletin. This is God's word. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Let me pray for God to shine his light on the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, We cannot see unless you shine light on your word. So would you open the eyes of our hearts that we might see uh, what you have for us from your word this morning, that we might see the truth and the power of your gospel um, presented in the sending of your son, Jesus Christ, as we consider him and his love for us first. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Lord, I take great comfort that though I don't know the hearts of those before me, you do. And you know how each and every one of them comes in. And so I pray that um, for those who are coming in, uh, maybe too comfortable by the power of your gospel, would you disrupt them? And for those who you know that are coming in too disrupted, uh, would you comfort them by the power of your gospel? And would this all be for our good and for your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, church. Uh, It is a privilege to be with you all uh, this morning as... uh, Dick said, my name is Hardy Reynolds. I'm the campus minister uh, with Reformed University Fellowship uh, at University of Central Florida, uh, RUF at UCF. It's just a lot of acronyms. but um, I've been in that role for um, a little over uh, two years, and it has been a great joy and privilege. Uh, your pastor, Stephen, uh, actually uh, heads the, the RUF committee chair that oversees our ministry, and I've been so grateful for his, his leadership and uh, for, for the ways that he has supported uh, our ministry. So it's a real privilege and honor to be able to come and uh, to preach uh, God's word for you all this morning. Um, we are a campus ministry that actually is the official campus ministry of uh, the PCA, which is the denomination that uh, Seven Rivers Village Church is a part of. And so when I describe what our, our purpose is uh, with RUF, I'll often uh, talk about our purpose is uh, to love God, love others, and to love UCF, the place that God has called us. Um, but I'll often clarify as I'm talking to students, we, we do that because we're called uh, to love uh, in light of a greater love, a first love, a foundational love, that God has actually loved us first. And it is only from that position of being loved that we are called and sent out to be able to love uh, those callings of God, others, in the place that he's called us. And so our text this morning, as we just read, has a lot to say about the love of God. Um, It is an amazing text, and I think it's uh, really um, an amazing text uh, to help us consider the the season of uh, the church calendar that we're entering, we're we're heading into uh, season of Advent, and I think it's fitting uh, because today marking the beginning of Advent, um, Adventus is the word uh, that that term comes from, and it means uh, to come to or arrivals. And it is historically, it's it's been a celebration and an anticipation of the arrival or uh, the coming of Jesus Christ, and the church has both considered uh, how Christ came in the past in his humility uh, into a a city of Bethlehem, the city of David as a baby, but it also calls to mind his second coming when he promises that he will come again to make all things new, to make all sad things untrue, or as the the Christian hymn will say, he's going to do that as far as the curse is found, So that's what we are are turning to in this season of Advent, of considering the implications of the the arrival or the coming of Christ. It is a season of preparation. One of my friends, another RUF campus minister, uh, described Advent in this way. He said, consider this, consider Thanksgiving. Um, How do you prepare for the Thanksgiving meal? If you are to eat Thanksgiving meal at 4 p.m., how do you structure your morning? What do you do? Well, you, you likely don't go out and have a big breakfast at Cracker Barrel. You don't have a heavy uh, breakfast. Um, uh, you don't snack all day. No, you actually uh, refuse heavier foods. Um, you kind of prepare. Um, you put on your stretchy pants, and you, and you wait for the feast. Um, and it's all in preparation of this feast, this, this coming um, party, this meal that you're going to participate in. And of course, you wouldn't fill yourself uh, beforehand. And so Advent, similarly, is the way that we prepare our hearts uh, for the light of Christ to come, that we can fully anticipate and appreciate Christmas Day when we celebrate his coming and his arrival. It's an opportunity for us to consider uh, not only the darkness that we see in our world, but also the darkness that we see in our own hearts, so that we might actually appreciate the light of Christ when when it comes to us, Uh, at Christmas. Um, So in that way, uh, I'd invite you in this uh, Advent season to uh, put on your stretchy pants, as it were, uh, to prepare yourselves for the feast of the light of Christ in his coming. And because as we celebrate this year in and year out as a church, uh, we're, we're celebrating the fact that this is how God shows his love for his people, that he sent his son. And that's what we see in our text today, how God loves in his son, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see how God loves in four uh, specific ways. We're going to see uh, first that God's love pursues. We're going to see uh, that God's love uh, propitiates. We're going to see that God's love perfects. And then finally, uh, we're going to see that God's love produces participation. Now, this text um, we're invited to consider this type of love from the Apostle John. Um, And and whether you're convinced about the claims of Christianity or or you're unconvinced this morning, um, it's important for you to answer the question, why do I care about what this Apostle John has to say about the love of Christ? Because this is an Apostle that spent uh, arguably the most time uh, with Jesus. Um, He would have had countless walks with Jesus, countless trips, countless meals, countless years um, in studying under uh, the ministry of Jesus. And he actually was one of the disciples that was uh, the very last one at the cross of Christ. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, what, what John, over all those years, what, what John drank of deeply in private, he now, in this letter, belches out for all to hear. And I don't know how that strikes you, that image of the Apostle John belching, Um, but it is a powerful image of what John has uh, drank in deeply, of abiding in the love of Jesus year in and year out, countless hours and uh, ministry and healings and just time with his Lord and Savior. He now extends to us, his church, the truths of those very moments. And so we're going to see uh, this in four ways. So first, how God's love pursues. We see this in a number of ways in our, in our passage. Uh, verse 7 says, beloved, let us love one another. And again in verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now what, what John's doing there in part is he's, he's, he's telling his listeners of his own love for them, uh, but, but also he's sharing with them his his own title that he enjoyed. He actually had this great name called the uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was self given. He he titled himself that, and he's actually saying, "You share that status, church, as beloved, and you have been pursued or loved first. That is true of you, and so he is sharing that title with them." He also, in this passage, he highlights that the love of God pursues by highlighting the sentness of Christ. He uses that word over and over again. Verse 9, it says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son. Verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son. And verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world this is at the very heart of what it means that God's love pursues, that God's love comes to the place that we are. It doesn't stay back remote waiting for um, us to get our lives together. No, God sends his love into those very places that we most need it. That is how we see the pursuit of God's love. It's been said that this is one of God's signature moves. It's how he loves. He comes after his people. We could turn to many places in scripture for examples, but I just want to consider two stories uh, with you all this morning. One from the Old Testament and one from the New. Um, the Old Testament in Genesis 16, we see God's pursuing love um, of, in the story of Sarah and Hagar. This story in Genesis 16, it happens many years after the promises come to Abraham uh, that God will make from him a great nation. And in Genesis 15, where he takes them outside and points at the stars and says, so your children will be. And so it's many years after these promises and uh, Abraham and Sarah have yet to have a child. And so Sarah begins to doubt. She said, God's made me barren. So she actually looks to the custom of the world and says, here, take my servant Hagar, have her bear a child for me. And so Abraham does, and Hagar bears a child. And it says that Hagar looked on Sarah with contempt, and therefore Sarah treated Hagar harshly. And so the story picks up in Genesis 16. We find Hagar, she has been uh, banished to the wilderness. She is um, vulnerable. She is on her own. She has been treated harshly. And it says that the Lord found her. It says the Lord in the wilderness, after having experienced this harsh treatment from Sarah, finds her and her response to her being found by God, she names God saying, you are a God of seeing. For truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So what do we see there about God's pursuing love? Well, he pursues us in the very places that we suffer the consequences of other sins. He pursues us in those places where we have experienced the consequences of how others have sinned against us. And Hagar names it of you have seen me and you look after me. You will take care of me in those very places where I have, I've experienced harshness um, and, and consequence for how others have treated you. Again, in, uh, in the New Testament, Luke 15, a famous story of two sons, uh, we see God's pursuing love. Um, Consider the first son, the, the, the one we know is the prodigal son. He basically tells his dad, um, hey dad, you're um, not doing anything for me alive, so um, it, you're basically better off dead to me. Will you just give me my inheritance now so I can get on with my life? And shockingly, the father honors this outrageous request. He gives the son his inheritance, which the son then spends on reckless living. So much so that he winds up homeless, he um, is in a pit living uh, with pigs, and is actually jealous of what the pigs are eating. And then this thought occurs to him, hey, the servants in my father's house, they actually have a better life than I have right now. Maybe if I go to my father and apologize, I can be a servant in his house. And so he goes. He goes home. But the story says, what happens before he gets home is the father sees him a long way off and rather than saying, oh, this ought to be good or I wonder what this son has to say, no, the father actually runs, goes to the son and before the son can actually get his apology out and his request to make him a servant, the father embraces him, throws his arms around him, gives him a robe, gives him a ring and throws a party, celebrates the arrival back home of this son. Probably the largest party this region had ever seen. And so, as the father has pursued the son in this way, there's also the other son, the older one, who is coming up to the house. He hears music, hears a party, and he asks somebody and he says, Hey, your brother that was lost, he's found, he's home. And his brother is indignant. How dare the father lavishly love and celebrate this prodigal son? And this would have been a huge sign of disrespect to the father, the fact that the father has chosen to throw this party. But what does the father do? He goes to the son. He goes out to the older son. In the very place of disrespect, in the very place of self-righteousness, he pursues the son. So what do we see here in this story? Well, just as we saw that God's love pursues us in the consequences of other sin against us, God's love also pursues, shows up in the very places that our sin has most affected our lives. God moves towards those places. He pursues us in those places. And he shows up to offer us his love in those very places. Where is it in your life, where is it in your life that you need to be reminded that the love of God is, is present where you've been sinned against and in the most shameful places of your sin. What John is saying in this passage is God's love pursues you even there. He runs to you even there. That's how we see how God loves first in this passage. Secondly, we see how God's love propitiates. And we see this from um, verse 10. In verse 10, it says this, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So propitiation here, it means a sacrifice. It means a sacrifice that bears God's wrath and turns it to favor. What this verse is saying is that as the perfect sacrifice for sin, Jesus actually turns away God's wrath, God's displeasure. And it's offered on your behalf. It's offered to everyone in the whole world that will place their faith in this propitiating sacrifice. That it is for everyone who would hope and trust in that sacrifice. It's not only for John, it's not only for uh, John's current readers, it is for us today. That that sacrifice is effectual for all who would place their hope uh, in Jesus' sacrifice. Now, so often today, um, this idea of God's wrath, the idea of God's judgment, um, it can can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. It can be hard for us to really consider uh, how can a, a God who this text says is love, how can a God like that have wrath? Well, a couple of things to help us consider this. Well, one, um, God's wrath, his, his anger is not like our anger. It's not just a bigger version of our anger or our jealousy. Um, it is uh, wholly different. Uh, one of the best or most helpful definitions that I've heard of the wrath of God comes from theologian John Stott. And he put it this way, God's wrath is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. I'll say that again. His steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all of its forms and manifestations. So therefore, in order, in order for God to be loving, he cannot compromise with any evil in any of its forms, in any of its places. He must right evil he must right all wrongs. And what this passage is saying is, he does that through the pro, uh, propitiatory death of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. He rights the wrongs of those who have sinned against his holy character. And those who would place their trust in this sacrifice no longer have to fear his wrath, no longer have to fear his judgment. But it actually, that wrath has been now turned into favor. God, in his uh, holy character, in his just character, must judge evil. But what he's chosen to do is he has chosen to show his justice by judging um, his son, by placing the judgment for sin on his son, who willingly goes to the cross and bears uh, that judgment. So what happens there is his blood, Jesus' blood, propitiates, it, it satisfies God's wrath. So that his justice is not compromised in forgiving sinners. He, he is not compromised with evil. He has judged it fully. And yet, he welcomes sinners into his presence. He, he welcomes them into relationship by the effectual sacrifice of his son, Jesus That's what we mean when we say it is propitiatory. Some scholars will say that this needs to be translated as um, expiation, not propitiation, which means the removal of sin. But it's more than that. It's not just that your record has been wiped clean. It is that you have now been given favor. What what was a, a posture of God's wrath and judgment for our sin has been turned into a welcome into an embrace, so it's not only you are removed, your sins are removed from you, it is welcome home, come into my presence. You are welcome here. You have God's favor. And this is the miracle of this exchange. One of the most famous passages uh, for highlighting the benefits of this exchange is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, We might become the righteousness of God. It really is one of the most important of all passages of Scripture for understanding this meaning of propitiation and atonement and what we have uh, in Christ. Because here we see that the one who knew no sin, that is Jesus, and that God, he made him, that is Christ, to be sin or to be regarded as our sin. Even though Christ himself never sinned, he was treated as sin, and why? For our sake, it says. So that we might actually be considered righteous. That we have that title. We are given that title as righteous uh, before God. That's how God regards uh, us. That's how God loves, as he, he transforms sinners in, in, in just deserving of His wrath into the objects of His favor through the propitiatory death of his son Jesus. That is how he loves. This idea is, is at the heart of some of our favorite stories uh, because it's so powerful when, when we see it Um, Consider one of my favorite uh, animated uh, movies, The Iron Giant, the 1999 classic. Um, The Iron Giant is about uh, this boy, Hogarth, who finds uh, an iron giant in the woods behind his house. And this movie takes place in the Cold War era where uh, the army actually thinks that this giant um, is a Russian spy or weapon, and so the, the army is trying to uh, find out where this iron giant is, and Hogarth, this boy, is trying to hide this, uh, this, this giant and convince the United States military that, hey, it's not a threat, it's just my friend, and that is the premise of the movie. Well, as the movie goes on, there's one soldier, Mansley, who grows more and more obsessed about finding this iron giant and destroying uh, the giant. And so at the, at the end of the movie, Mansley finally locates the giant, and in a fit of rage, he uh, commands a nuclear missile to be fired at the giant. To which a general responds, Mansley, where's the giant? And as Mansley looks the giant's about 20 yards away from him and he realizes that he has just doomed not only himself but the entire village. And so as the villagers, as they realize uh, that they are about to die, despair and fear uh, kind of takes over the whole town and as the iron giant witnesses this, he turns to Hogarth and Hogarth tries to explain when, when that missile, when it comes, we're all dead, and when the giant realizes this, he tells Hogarth, you, you stay, I go. And in that moment, he takes off and, and meets the missile in the atmosphere, saving the village. And as Hogarth witnesses this sacrifice, he whispers, I love you. And what happens in that moment is when we see a, a friend or who, who would step into our death sentence for us, it can't help but produce love in our hearts. And that's exactly what Hogarth experienced, and that's exactly what happens in our hearts. When we come to understand the pursuing, sacrificial, propitiatory love of Christ, it produces love in our hearts. It, it actually causes us to see the fullness of how God has loved us in Christ. And when we come to understand that, uh, we actually begin to understand this third aspect, that God's love perfects. Another way to say that is that it makes whole. It creates wholeness. Look at verse 17. It says, By this is love perfected or made whole with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. The fear referred to here in this passage is not where we hear in Scripture and other places the the righteous or good fear of the Lord uh, in the Psalms and the Proverbs. But specifically here, this fear is a fear of judgment, a fear of condemnation. And so what John is saying is when we come to see this pursuing um, sacrificial love of God, it removes all fear of condemnation and judgment from our hearts. It removes it. We no longer have to fear condemnation. We no longer have to fear judgment. Said in another way, condemnation or judgment is not a Christian motivation for love. It is off the table. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so what does that mean? Is that we do not love out of a place of fear. We actually love out of a place of being loved fully, foundationally that's what John is saying, is it produces this sense of security that we no longer have to fear condemnation or judgment. In order to uh, understand this next illustration, I have to warn you, I'm inviting you into the mind of a middle school boy, um, and that can be a scary, irrational place, but I was a scary, irrational middle schooler. Um, when I was in middle school, I um, loved uh, my grandfather. My grandfather was a hero to me. Um, And when I was in middle school, I had some friends um, that uh, when we would get out of school, we would basically spend the time waiting for our parents uh, by just making fun of one another. And so I was uh, increasingly insecure as a middle schooler. And uh, one day... I had this amazing promise that my grandfather had given me that that day he was going to pick me up and take me to my first Alabama football game. This is when, uh, if, if you're familiar with Alabama football, they no longer play on Thursdays in, uh, I just forgot the name, Legion Field in Birmingham. Um, but it, that, that's how long ago this, this uh, story was. Um, But I told all my friends as kind of a bragging like, hey, I'm getting to go to the Alabama game, he's taking me. And so sure enough, my grandfather picks me up, we drive down uh, to Birmingham to go to uh, the Alabama game. I'm from Huntsville, Alabama, I don't think I said that. Um, So it's about an hour and a half drive. And uh, as we roll into Birmingham, uh, huge dark clouds are greeting us. And as we walk into the stadium, we are met with uh, just a torrential downpour. And so before kickoff, we are soaking wet. And I look around and everybody else has on what I came to learn were called punches. We did not, so we are soaked to the bone. Um, And before kickoff, my grandfather turns to me and said, hey, it's okay, but do you want to leave? I said, no, I can't do that. But by the end of the first quarter, I was freezing. I was shivering. Um, I was having a miserable time, even though I had looked forward to this. And so I told him, yeah, I think I need to leave. But as we're driving home an hour uh, to Huntsville, the, the insecurities of a middle schooler started playing in my head. I've told all my friends I'm going to this game. What if they find out I left? What if they find out I couldn't take it? What if they find out that I got too cold and I wimped out and I couldn't stay for this game? And as I thought about that, I was like, well, I'm just going to listen to it on the radio. I'll pretend like I was there the whole time. Um, I'll, I'll just, you know, remember all the highlights. But then this other thought hit me. My grandfather paid for these tickets. He invited me. He sacrificed. He drove. What, what, if, what if he's mad at me? What, what if he never extends this invitation to me again? What if this is a disrespect to how he has loved me? And as I'm thinking about these things, uh, I notice my grandfather gets off at an exit that I don't recognize. And he pulls into a Shoney's, which is like a Denny's. um, And he turns to me and he says, do you want a hot chocolate? And in that moment, what I realized was two things. One, um, that this man loved me. And secondly, that there's nothing that I could do to um, lose that love. And so as he got out of the car, he took off his jacket and wrapped it around me and ran through the rain to go get me a hot chocolate. And why I tell you that story is perfect love casts out fear. I no longer had fear that my grandfather uh, wouldn't accept me, wouldn't um, uh, invite me to other games. Um, And so it is, in a way, with, with, with our God who has, in Christ, through his pursuing sacrificial love, has actually wrapped Christ's righteousness around us. So where when we wake up every morning, we are clothed, robed in Christ's righteousness. So God the Father sees us as he sees his beloved son. We have that title, never to be lost. It is yours in Christ Jesus. You wake up with that righteousness day in and day out. And so what that then invites us to, is our final point, is the participation in this love. God's love produces participation. Well, if perfect love, if perfect love casts out fear, then it stands to reason that fear will cast out perfect love. So if we want to understand how, how can we per, uh, participate in the, the areas that God is calling us to love? we might consider the barriers to that. And one of the barriers is gonna be what are you afraid of? Where is fear ruling your hearts? Where does fear keep you from loving? Is it in your career? Uh, is it in your family? Um, is it in your, your financial security? Where, where is it that you experience fear that keeps you from loving? What John is inviting us to is if we consider those areas and actually then meditate and consider how God has pursued us in all of the places of not only how we've been sinned against, how we have sinned, uh, and he still shows up with with grace and and sacrificial love in those very places, then we have no reason to fear. That perfect love actually casts out fear. And so the the little uh, fears that we have um, can actually be banished. Uh, by the love of God. We don't have to look to ourselves for our security. We don't have to look to our careers for our security. We have it in God's love. We have it in Christ. You're freed up to be a husband who repents because you don't have to be a perfect husband. You have a Savior who has loved you completely and actually frees you up to be able to acknowledge your wrongs. You can take ownership. You, you, You don't have to get defensive you can take ownership for your sins in ways that then frees you up to participate in the love of God. So how and where can we do this? Well, first, two, t- just two brief uh, places. You're doing it right now. You're participating in the love of God through participation in the local church. He promises to be with us when we gather for worship. He promises to show his love for us as we regularly sit under uh, the reading, the preaching of his word, his, his truth sung in community. He promises to, to show his love to his people in uh, the gathered worship of his people. He promises to be present in his sacraments. Consider the Lord's Supper. You get to experience sensationally In the Lord's Supper, just as you taste the bread, just as you drink the wine, that reality of those tastes, of those senses, point to the greater reality of how Christ has loved us, how his body was broken for us, how his blood was shed for us. And when you participate in those realities, you actually participate in the very love of God. Secondly, um, we participate in the love of God by diving into Christian fellowship and community, by surrounding ourselves with Christian community and risking enough to actually be known, to confess our sins, uh, to uh, ask for and to extend forgiveness to one another. For when we do that, we will be participating in this love. We read earlier uh, in the assurance of pardon um, where John uh, says, and I think it's uh, uh, 1 John 1, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is speaking to this remarkable reality uh, that you and I can be assured of our forgiveness. We can be assured of our um, cleansing before God. The Apostle James, though, he takes up this idea kind of from another angle, and he says in his letter, therefore confess your sins to Another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as uh, it is working. What James is saying there is not only are we to confess to God that we might be assured of forgiveness in our cleansing, but we are also to confess in community with one another that we might actually experience healing. Because in Christian community, when we come alongside one another and we ask for forgiveness, when we confess the ways that we are struggling. Scripture gives us promises uh, that we can trust our God to heal us, to come alongside us in those very places. Those are the invitations uh, that Scripture has for us this morning to be able to see, to witness, to bask, to abide in the pursuing love of God, to see how that pursuit led Jesus to the cross, that he might be a propitiation for our sins, where the wrath that was our due has actually been turned into favor, to delight. And when we grasp that, it perfects our love to where we no longer have to fear judgment, we no longer have to fear condemnation. And ultimately what that leads us to then is freedom freedom to participate, freedom to follow him in the ways in which he's calling us to love our community and wherever he has called us. That's an invitation and a promise. Let's pray. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are kind and gracious in, um, you do not need us to seek your kingdom, but you invite us to participate in seeking your kingdom. And so I pray that as we consider and sing of your love, uh, that you would produce uh, that same love in our hearts, uh, that we might return it to you and return it to our neighbor and to all the places that you have called us uh, to. Would you find us faithful to this task, we pray, in your son's powerful name, amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.